Three years ago, he groomed and lured a married student under his care at a Christian seminary into a sexual relationship. Now he's moved to another state and is relaunching his ministry. But today, his victim is speaking out. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's, and today I'm going to be speaking with Katie Roberts. Katie once was the director of the Women's Training Network for the Gospel Coalition, but she resigned that position in 2018. And according to a statement by the Gospel Coalition at the time, Katie resigned because she had confessed to an adulterous relationship. But as you'll hear today, that relationship was not an adulterous affair. According to Katie, it was abuse. It was a case of a highly respected Christian professor, Dr. Art Azurdia, using his position of power to prey on an unsuspecting student. And sadly, before today, the abusive nature of Dr. Azurdia's relationship with Katie has never been made public. And even though Dr. Azurdia has not reconciled with Katie and many of those he's hurt, he's apparently been restored to ministry. And he's not only speaking at an upcoming Christian conference, but he's actually become an instructor at an academy for college-age students, and reportedly he's being considered for pastoral positions. That's why Katie Roberts is speaking out. Her story is such a powerful tale how even as an adult, someone can be groomed and abused and how even after abusing someone, a man can return to ministry when he should be disqualified. I'm very eager to speak with Katie, but before I introduce her, I just want to take a minute to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. Judson is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience. Plus, the school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marcourt of Barrington. Marcourt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marcourt, are men of integrity. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Katie Roberts, the former director of the Women's Training Network for the Gospel Coalition. She's also a pastor's wife who served for decades as a Bible teacher in women's ministry, and her husband, Richard Roberts, currently serves as the teaching pastor at Emerald Bible Fellowship in Eugene, Oregon. But as you'll hear, Katie's life was turned upside down several years ago when she enrolled as a student at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. That's when she met Dr. Art Azurdia, who at the time was a professor there. So, Katie, welcome, and thanks so much for being willing to come on and talk about something that I know was a very difficult time in your life. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Julie. So, Katie, there are several things about your experience that I think will be eye-opening for listeners. One is just the anatomy of abuse, how predators groom their victims and lure them into abusive relationships, and I know especially when this comes to adult victims, this is an area that people really don't understand. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving into that. The other part of your story, though, that I, you know, I wish was shocking, but sadly, I think it's become commonplace, and that's how an abuser can be replatformed. And your abuser now is in the process of being replatformed, speaking at conferences, teaching at ministry schools, even being considered for pastoral ministry. So I'm, you know, just really eager to jump into all of that. But I think before we do, 
I want to just start at the beginning and understand how your relationship with uh, Dr. Azurdia began. So could you tell me about that? So um, I had heard all kinds of good things about Dr. Azurdia before I went to his class. I heard good things about his um, theology. I heard good things about um, the church that he was pastoring, uh, lots of people that I knew sang his praises. And he was a really engaging teacher just right from the beginning, as well as a um, charismatic person that drew you in. Uh, he, he seemed to really care about his students, even offering to have dinner with us at restaurants before class and things like that. That's how we met. And, and he, he became for you somewhat of a, a father figure, right? Absolutely. After that first night of class, uh, he um, even offered that the student who asked the best question would get a candy bar. And I asked a question about uh, women in preaching context, and he chose me to give me that candy bar. Even that first night of class, he also said to me that because I drove so far to get to the seminary, because it was about a two-hour drive for me to come to class, that, you know, if I ever needed a place to stay, that he would welcome me at his house, um, that his wife would welcome me too. So he just seemed... Um, very friendly and pastoral. And then I emailed him with questions about um, our class, questions about the passage that I was going to teach. And then after a few emails back and forth with each other, he started asking me personal questions. You know, what's your favorite books? What's your favorite movies? And I felt special and thankful that this man who I looked up to was interested in me. And again, it was a way that he treated multiple students. He he met with us for dinner. He was interested in our lives. He prayed for students. So at first, that didn't seem that unnatural to me. Um, but then he started telling me about his own life. He said that he had had one of the hardest years of his life, that um, nobody around him really understood what he was going through, that he had, had been hurt by a longtime friend, and that he needed somebody to talk to. And so I also felt really honored that he would reach out to me for that kind of support. Um, and he described himself as somebody who, you know, he was in ministry, so there weren't that many people he could trust or talk to, that it was helpful to have somebody outside of his church. Hmm. But after a short period of time, he sent me an email in which he said, would you be available for a quick phone call? Hmm. And that was my first indication that something was off because that didn't seem like anything that would happen between any of my previous professors and myself. And so I told him, you know, no, I'm busy. You know, um, I'm not, I don't really want that to happen. And then he pushed again and said, well, it'll just be five minutes. I just want to say hi. And I gave in and he called me. It was um, a short conversation and it really was, you know, not a lot of substance to it, but it was the first time that I had some red flags about his um, interactions with me. Um, and my response to that was to tell my husband and say, you know, there's this professor, he asked to call me, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with those things. Um, and then uh, after that, Dr. Zerdia also emailed me. And in the email, he said, would you mind if I called you my Catherine? I go by Katie, but hmm. my full name is Catherine. 
And I said I was somewhat uncomfortable. And he wrote back and reassured me, you know, it's the type of relationship I would have with my daughter, you know, uh, reassuring me that he was like a father figure. Uh, Richard called him to discuss his concerns with him. And Dr. Azuria assured Richard that he thought of me like a daughter and that the last thing he wanted to do was come between us in our marriage that we had just misunderstood him. I know that when Richard got off the phone with him, he was still somewhat uncomfortable, but he thought that Dr. Azurdia was just naive and didn't know how his words were coming across. Hmm. There's certain telltale things in what you just said. I mean, one, the father figure. I- I've talked to so many victims where the, the predator comes across as a father figure. I mean, it just seems to be one of the telltale signs. I know with Laurieann Thompson, for example, and her relationship uh, with Ravi Zacharias, it was that father figure and really tapping into a father wound that she had. And so father figure in some ways can seem very healthy and and safe, and yet at the same time, this safeness of it can be a, a context, it seems, for abuse. And then you've got where he said, you know, there's nobody else I can trust. There's something about that, isn't it, that kind of appeals to your own need or want to be needed? And it does. Doesn't it begin to emotionally draw you in? Did you feel emotionally drawn into this relationship at this point? Yes, I did. Absolutely. Uh, My own birth father died in a car accident when I was four. Mm. And although I have a wonderful adoptive father, there's still a hole in my heart that that will just be there, uh, I think, until I see the face of Jesus. And one of the effects that losing my dad in such a tragic way at a young age had on me was fear of losing the people that I love. As Dr. Azurdia drew me in and promised, I mean, some of the things he said to me is, you can open up your vulnerabilities to me. I will never hurt you in your vulnerabilities you know, I will care for you. I'll be this safe place. As he drew me into that. And as he asked me questions about the loss of my father and the pain that I had endured, he began to not, I wasn't just drawn to it, but I became um, very attached to him in that role. And I think this is important that all along in those things, um, I resisted, uh, or I would say, I'm not comfortable with this, or I'm not sure that this is right. And in various ways, he had ways of saying, oh, I didn't mean that, or here's another way of looking at it. And so there was resistance to looking to him as a father figure, or and there was resistance to dependence on him. Um, but various things that he said and did would wear down those defenses. And the same with being... Um, going from being a confidant to being somebody who, you know, would, um, you know, be the person who truly knew him or loved him. Not only did that progress slowly over time, one step at a time, but there was, you know, discussion about, you know, I'm not sure this is right. I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with this. It seems like, you know, maybe this is, you know, we're, that you're asking for something, first of all, that is inappropriate between, two people that are not married, a man and a woman and who are married to other people. But in a different in in addition to that, that some of the things you're asking me for are things that only the Lord can meet that that Mm -hmm. and he, he had answers to that, like, oh, well, you know, God created us to belong to one another. And there were ways in which he used scripture and his position of spiritual authority to undermine those things. So and that's why this is not when people look at this, 
there is an element of power differential. There's an element of trust. And that's what makes this a little bit different than I think often it's presented to people. And so I, these are the parts, I think, that are so important as we even uh, begin to unpack how this happened. Because, again, this is not just an adulterous affair. This is a predatory affair. This is not really an affair. It's abuse. Right. So let's talk a little bit about how it began, you know, to cross some of these lines. You're resisting. You did a great thing and having your husband get on the phone and actually talk to him and kind of, you know, usually that scares abusers off, quite frankly. But it didn't with him. How did it progress beyond that? What ended up happening is that Dr. Azurdia told me at a certain point, um, uh, again, and this was still within just the first few months of knowing him, that he and his wife didn't have a typical relationship, that they had never been um, particularly close and presented himself as somebody who had been rejected by her and that they only um, lived in the same place about half of the time. And he shared that with me and told me, you know, you're the only person I've ever shared this with. Um, I also told him at the time that Richard and I had a much closer relationship and um, kind of a typical marital relationship. And he said to me at the time, well, I'm not asking you for anything. I'm just curious um, uh, and wanted to share with you, uh, which served to kind of ease my discomfort with the conversation we were having. But in that same conversation later, he told me, you know, I think that I've fallen in love with you. And I, I've never told anybody that before. I've never been in love with anybody else before. Um, and uh, I was taken aback by it mm. and said to him again, well, I love Richard. And he said back to me again, I'm not asking for anything. I just wanted to share this with you. And you don't have to worry. It doesn't have anything sexual attached to it. Um, I just wanted to share with you how I'm feeling about you and that you're the only person that I've ever said this to. My response to that was maybe it can be a close friendship, but it needs to just stay within that realm of friendship. How are you meeting at this point? I mean, is this are these conversations happening after class? Are they happening on the phone? Are you getting together for coffee? Are you going to his house? I mean, how is it how is this relationship progressing at this point? So again, I it's just kind of a pattern of he asks me for something, I express resistance, he kind of put me at ease about it, and then I went to his house. Um, but when I got to his house, what I found was that he had a romantic card for me, and there was a red rose, and all of the things that I had expressed discomfort about. That made me feel uncomfortable again. And we did have a conversation about friendship and that I wanted to keep things in the realm of friendship. And he expressed that he understood that. And then uh, I left. And so uh, that was the encounter that I had with him at his house. Then there was also a pretty, another telling um, situation that happened. Uh, when I met him at his office, he told me um, this whole thing has reached the point of arousal. And that was the first time that I was aware of the fact that he really was crossing a, um, a boundary into something sexual. I was shocked that he said that to me because I really believed what he had said before about that, you know, he, he wouldn't do anything I wasn't comfortable with and that this, his, you know, romantic love for me wasn't sexual. And so I stepped back and just kind of left the situation there for now. Hmm. 
That is really an alternate reality when you have a man trying to convince you that a romantic relationship is not going to turn sexual. <laughs> I mean, right. Yeah. Yes. Um, yep. That yep. for sure. So, so you have this inviting you over to the house. I'm sure you thought, mm, not a good idea, but you did it. And then again, him trying to craft this alternate reality, but then you kind of put it on pause for a while, didn't you? And you kind of walked away. Right. That's right. I felt like I had been stunned, like with a stun gun, and that I was kind of in a stupor. I found that I couldn't think clearly anymore. And I couldn't mm. grasp onto things that I had known for sure before. And I would have these arguments even in my own head when I was apart from Dr. Azurdia, things like, I really don't think that this relationship is okay. And my own brain would say, yeah, but there's these gray areas. Yeah, but I didn't realize at the time that those, yeah, but statements in my own mind hadn't come from me, but were things that had been introduced to me by Dr. Azurdia. And so what it felt like was that my own mind was degrading and I couldn't think clearly anymore. I didn't know how to reconcile, you know, also the fact that I needed to be like faithful and true and loyal to Richard. I haven't mentioned that up to this point, but that was also part of my conversations with Dr. Azurdia. And so I felt torn there too, where I said, I just think we can't have contact with each other anymore because um, I'm a temptation for you. Again, I wrongly, wrongly thinking about it, but that's what I thought at the time. And so, yeah, we cut off contact and didn't talk to one another for a really long time. Hmm. It was about a year, I think. Hmm. And over that time, it sounds like he threatened suicide, right? Deep depression, which again, is a means of trying to pull you back in. What ended up happening after a long time of not having contact with each other is that Dr. Azurdia contacted me again. And uh, through a series of events, we ended up uh, having conversations on the phone again, uh, emailing one another, and it quickly progressed right back to where it had been before, where Dr. Azurdia was pursuing me romantically and wanting something more from me than friendship. And I became uncomfortable with that again. So over that time that we had been apart, there was some things that I put together in my own mind that caused me to think that Dr. Azurdia had had a another relationship with a woman under his spiritual authority that had involved sexual contact. And so I asked him directly eventually about this um, other woman who I thought he had had sexual contact with. And he told me that he had, he admitted it, but then he got really angry with me for asking him about it. He said, you know how um, I, I in response <laughs> had said to him, I don't want to be a mistress because that was the first time it occurred to me there is something wrong with this. And it made my situation with him feel dirty to me for the first time. And I felt in that moment, I felt betrayed. And so I said to him, it seems to me as though this other situation had been like a mistress. And now I feel like that's me. I do have to interject I didn't understand at the time about abuse and abuse of power. So I was still thinking about things in terms of affair and adultery. I now think that that's wrong, but that's where my mind was at the time. And so I had said that to him just instinctively, and he got really angry with me and basically said, how dare you have asked me about this and how dare you call it 
a mistress because you know how much that would hurt me. So I immediately felt guilty for even asking him about it. It was, it was like all the responsibility and all the blame was back on me. And I felt like I was a bad person for having asked him about it. It was in that context where Dr. Azurdia said to me, if my wife or my family ever found out about this, I would either drive my car off a cliff or put a gun in my mouth. So that was the time in which he said, I mean, he didn't, he didn't overtly say to me, if you tell anybody, I will kill myself. But the implication of those words is, if anybody finds out, which I'm the person who could make it known, then I will, you know, I would do these, I would commit suicide in one of these ways. So at this point, the relationship hasn't become overtly sexual. Obviously, there's been a lot of tension in the relationship that way. There's been incredible emotional intimacy, but it hasn't crossed over those lines. How did the relationship turn into something that was physical? He reached out to me again. He took me out to lunch. Um, He told me he was still in love with me. and, And he basically said, you know, we don't need to have a sexual relationship. Why don't we just stop trying to define it, stop arguing, and just have ongoing contact with each other? The deception he'd use and the manipulation had made it impossible for me to think clearly anymore or make discerning choices. And so for about a year, we communicated with each other daily. So that was the first time that this had happened. Uh, We would have texts and phone calls, but I would also go to his house when his wife was gone, which uh, ended up being about once a month. Even though we had said we would stop trying to define the relationship, Dr. Azurdia would kept pressuring me to admit that I actually was in love with him, that it wasn't just a father figure, that I was in love with him, and that to deny that was that I was like deceiving myself in it. And that just continued to create cognitive dissonance and a fog in my mind um, to the point that I became convinced that I was in love with him. And when I finally admitted that to him, he said, you're not, it's not wrong. It's not wrong for you to feel that way about me. People just uh, fall in love sometimes. And, and after all of these years of conversations and getting me to this point, I just believed him. Um, I still told him that we shouldn't act on our feelings sexually uh, but I but I fell into this romantic relationship at that point. Um, and that involved, it's true, um, there was inappropriate, although not overtly sexual contact, like snuggling or tickling. And during that time, he also um, gave me jewelry and gifts uh, as a way of wanting me to remember him all the time. He sent me romantic songs to listen to. He would say, I want you to think about me. I want you to need me. In fact, one of the songs was, I want you to need me like the air that you breathe. Um, he, he suggested romantic movies that we watch and, and these, these, this contact from him and these songs and that was constant. It was something that was going on all the time. And I often found like I couldn't get my feet underneath me. Um, uh, so that's, that's how it progressed from breaking off contact to an ongoing relationship that then turned into a romantic relationship. And again, I, I hesitate to use the word relationship because in reality, everything we're talking about is, a, is an abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's, there's abuse of power and authority, spiritual abuse. Then the stuff I'm talking about now, a lot of it is emotional and psychological abuse. So the word relationship is more positive, but I don't know what else to call it. Mm-hmm. So, 
And then my understanding for about a year from the summer of 2017 to June of 2018, this becomes overt sexual abuse. Yeah, that is true. So that happened um, one day when I was at Dr. Azurdia's house. He and I were physically close to one another, and he asked me directly if he could touch my breasts. And I said no to him. And a few minutes later, he did it anyway. Hmm. And in that moment of that happening, I froze. And what I thought was, he must not have heard me. Uh, because it doesn't make any sense to me that he's doing this, or maybe it was just an accident, like his hand just slipped. Uh, and um, so in that moment, it just it just didn't even seem possible to me, even after everything, that he would have done something that I had just told him I wasn't comfortable with. So I looked at him in surprise, and the words that he said to me next were, don't let me be like one of the bad men who hurt you in the past. One of the things I had shared with him is that I had been sexually abused as a child by a non-family member. Mm -hmm. And so he always put himself in this category of saying, I won't treat you like other bad men in your life. And so, I mean, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense now, but at the time I, it was like that responsibility was put back on me. And even though he had done something I said I wasn't comfortable with, I thought that I was responsible for it. I also just froze. I didn't, it's like I couldn't talk anymore. I was in this paralyzed state. And I, I do think that it was like, it felt like my voice didn't carry any power, that I didn't have the ability to stop this from happening because I had said no, and it had happened anyway. So there were multiple things that got me even more stuck. One of them was that he said to me, well, as long as we're not having sexual intercourse, which we never did, then it's not adultery. So there was some twisting of scripture to try to make it sound okay. And then in addition to that, when I would talk to him and say, you know, this needs to stop, he, he had initially said, we'll never do anything that you're not comfortable with. But then later, he would get really angry with me. And I was completely cowed by his anger. I was, uh, it created great fear in me. And so, um, and he would accuse me of, you know, damaging him for by by trying to withhold this. And, and then sometimes when he got really angry with me, it would cause me to withdraw in fear. And then he would change and, you know, fall on his knees and beg me not to leave him and say that it would psychologically damage him to lose sexual intimacy. Because again, I thought that he was this broken man who had not known love. And so every single time I tried to get out of the situation, I just got further stuck in it. I didn't see that I could bring everything out into the light. I felt like if I did that, I would be betraying him because that's where my mind was at the time. And so I felt completely stuck and as if I was losing my own identity that I couldn't think clearly anymore and that I was going crazy. And so there was a time came when it, the way that it felt to me was that I was stuck in quicksand. You know, at first I'd been stuck up to my waist and I struggled to get out and then I got stuck farther in and that, and I didn't understand why this was happening to me, but eventually I felt like I was up to my neck and that somehow fighting the situation was making it worse. Hmm. So that's how it became this uh, overtly sexually abusive situation that I was in. How did you go from that to actually like the light bulb coming on and realizing, okay, this is not 
a loving relationship between a man who is godly and loves the Lord. This is actually a man who is manipulating me and abusing me, and I'm letting it happen right now, and I need to stop this. I mean, how, how does that happen? How did you make that turn? I came to a point where I felt like there wasn't anything I could do to make the situation stop. So, and so I cried out to the Lord, who, by the way, was faithful to me all the way through this. And I cried out to him, I am trying to get out of this situation. And the more that I struggle, the more stuck I become. I need you to rescue me. And I am going to hold perfectly still in this quicksand and not try to resist anymore because I think if I resist, I'll completely lose my identity. And I think what was going on there is that there was either, I mean, there's this cognitive dissonance in my own head that's there. And, and there was a temptation to get rid of it by ceding control over my complete control over my thoughts and my behaviors and actions to whatever Dr. Azurdia wanted. But there was something deep inside me that knew that that was dangerous, that was still fighting against it. And so I told the Lord, I'm going to fight on the inside, but I need you to do something to rescue me out of this situation. And so the Lord did it, it, it. And he did it over a period of six months. So it wasn't immediate. But the very first thing that happened is Again, I didn't understand the things that Dr. Azurdia was doing that were deceptive and abusive. Um, I just didn't understand that that's what was happening. I didn't, I couldn't picture the situation rightly, but I did know that I felt like I was going crazy and that if I looked at what I was doing, I was doing things that I couldn't believe that I was doing that were completely out of character for who I had been before. And so I Googled, What's happening uh, when you feel like you're going crazy and you're doing things you would never do? And a bunch of hmm. stuff popped up. But eventually I clicked on a link that said, you might be being manipulated. And hmm. that was, I mean, it was a light bulb. It was a dim light. It took a long time for it to get bright. But it was the first time I realized that maybe something was being done to me rather than me causing all the things that were happening in this situation. Hmm. And that's a huge realization when you realize that you're actually, you're being abused. Instead of feeling guilty for it, you're actually turning the, the guilt where it belongs on, on your abuser. At this point, did you confess to your husband? Not yet. No, that's what I said. It, it's funny. I, I said it was a six-month process of God getting me out of the situation with Dr. Azurdia. And to be honest, because I had been pulled back into it so often, I'm not sure that I would have broken free. But in God's sovereignty, he, at the same time that all of this was happening, Richard became increasingly suspicious. And he ended up finding a journal that I had written about Dr. Azurdia. And so he confronted me about it. Uh, and it was just the God's timing, I think, that Richard confronted me at the same time that I really was so desperate to get out of the situation that I didn't think was pleasing to God and that I felt like was destroying me that I was willing to tell him everything. Hmm. And what a freedom that must have felt like to be able to admit it at that point. But I can only imagine the, the chaos in your own marriage, in your private life. But then now there's also your professional life and, you know, the ministry that you were involved in. I mentioned at the beginning that you were part of 
the Gospel Coalition and kind of their women's ministry um, aspect of that. And this is the part that I think is also so instructive about your story, not just how you can be groomed and lured into a relationship like this, but also once you realize that somebody has been abusing you and is a wolf, how do we treat that in the church? And so from my understanding, the first step that you guys took was Richard contacted the elders of the church where Dr. Azurdia was, the Trinity Church, and had a conversation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yes, Richard contacted Dr. Azurdia's elders at his own church. Dr. Azurdia's elders confronted him, and I know that a few days later, Dr. Azurdia called Richard on the phone to confess, but what he did on the phone with Richard was to make excuses um, and basically say, you know, our our relationship started innocently. We didn't intend for this to happen. He even told Richard that he and I had prayed for him, which really disturbed Richard to hear that. Um, and Dr. Azurdia's own elders heard all of this conversation happen. They removed him from his pastoral position. So that that's what happened at Trinity Church, where Dr. Azurdia was a pastor. And they also made a public announcement and they said, and I have it here, it was on July 2nd, uh, 2018, uh, says that the elders of Trinity Church of Portland received an accusation that Art Azurdia has been in a sexually immoral relationship with a woman from outside Trinity Church. The elders of Trinity Church, after an initial investigation, confronted Art with the accusation. Art admitted to the immorality. He also admitted to a previous sexually immoral relationship based on these facts and the biblical qualifications required of an elder, and then they refer to a few scriptures, the elders have removed Art Azurdia as senior ministry of word and worship at Trinity Church. Also as an elder and from all pastoral ministry at Trinity Church, we grieve the shame this brings on the gospel and the sorrow it brings to God's people. Now, after this, Art posted his own letter and in this, again, it's it's always referred to as a sexually immoral relationship or an adulterous relationship. And I'm guessing you're you're coming into an understanding of this actually being abuse. It's not fully formed at this point. Would that be correct? Yes, that's right, yeah. Julie. What happened to me is that I had gotten to the point where, and I I thought that I had committed adultery. Uh, and that would fall under that label of immoral relationship. But I also thought that I had been abused, both because Dr. Azurdia had a position of spiritual authority, so there was an abuse of power. And in addition, I understood at this point that he had been deceptive and manipulative. So, But what I didn't understand yet is that those two categories of you know, sexually immoral or adultery uh, or an affair are that and abuse are mutually exclusive, that mm. that you can't have both of those things going on at the same time. Hmm. Well, and another interesting thing about Art's letter is that he says, because of my sin, I have disqualified myself from the office of elder. Furthermore, I have no desire to pursue ministry of any kind. Now, if we fast forward a couple of years, we're going to see that that is not something he held to, but that's what he wrote at the beginning. Azurdia also, again, he's a professor at Western Seminary, and my understanding is that Western Seminary never makes any formal statement or any public statement about art. Is that a correct understanding? 
Yes, that is a correct understanding. Um, they didn't make a public announcement. And then they sent out some, you know, letters internally, some to students, as well as one to faculty, which people shared with us. And in the one to students, they don't even mention that there was anything sexual, much less an abuse of power. And then in the one to the faculty, they also don't mention any kind of abuse or anything like that. Or, and, and even the idea that it was between a professor and a student. So Richard and I were concerned that there wasn't any kind of public statement because we thought that there might have been other people who were abused by Dr. Azurdia and also that, that there wouldn't be any, you know, public knowledge of what he had actually done so that there wouldn't be any way to protect others from him uh, in the future. And mm -hmm. so we, we asked them to please make a public announcement that this was at least between a professor and a student, because we thought that that would at least show that there was um, a power differential within the situation. And, and they um, acknowledged that I had been abused in multiple ways. And they said that they would discuss it at their board meeting and get back to us. And their decision when they got back to us was to do a number of things internally, but not say anything about it publicly, hmm. uh, which Richard and I really felt and still feel like it was their responsibility to do. Hmm. And this is why people are able to relaunch because these statements aren't made public. And so it kind of gets swept under the rug. Um, the Gospel Coalition, when you came to them, it's my understanding, D.A. Carson was the president of the Gospel Coalition at the time. He wanted, you know, he appreciated that you came forward and they did release a statement, but it's all about you. It doesn't mention art Azurdia at all. And it says, it is with deep regret that we announced that Katie Roberts has resigned from her part-time post with the Gospel Coalition. She has confessed to a ministry disqualifying sin and adulterous relationship. Again, no mention of any abuse. We are grateful that she took the initiative to let us know and to resign effective immediately. Um, and then it talks, you know, about their appreciation that you came forward, took the initiative to do that. There's no, I mean, not even mentioning him. So that kind of gets swept under the rug. And you are for the past, you know, again, this is 2018. This is 2021. So this is almost three years that you have kind of lived in the aftermath of this. And yet now you're coming forward. Why do you feel like now you need to say something? Dr. Azurdia was willing to say that there had been this, you know, uh, adultery, this kind of, you know, sexual failure, but, but in his own open letter of confession, he doesn't talk about abuse or abuse of power. And so it created this public picture that was false, that was incorrect, and that didn't do anything to protect other vulnerable people from Dr. Azurdia's abuse and doing this kind of thing uh, again. And so when it became clear to me that Dr. Dr. Azurdia was going to return to a position of spiritual authority. And I felt like God had brought me to a point where I could speak at least somewhat articulately about this. I didn't feel like I had any other choice but to speak up about it. So I think that I had done everything that that really I was responsible to do. It may be responsible is not even the right word, um, because I know I've read a lot and been helped by Diane Langberg. And she talks mm -hmm. about how 
when you've been abused like this, you're crushed, you know? So I don't know if other people who've been abused are listening to this. I don't want them to feel like, you know, it's up to you to fix this situation because I, I really don't think that that's true. But nonetheless, even if it's not my responsibility, uh, I think I did the right thing in telling the people who were in authority and, and doing and telling the people who had, you know, the ability to supervise Dr. Azurdia. And I also think, but, but now that that hasn't happened, I think God has given me strength and that it really is the right thing to do to protect other people from Dr. Azurdia by making all of this public myself. And so you have said affair and abuse, they're mutually exclusive. But what do you say to the person out there that's pushing back and saying, well, no, didn't the women sin? What's their responsibility? Well, I think that there could be an entire book written about this. Yeah, we um, could do another it, entire podcast on this for sure. It's true. And it it's something that I have thought through and wrestled through a lot. So, And I think it's something that I will continue to think through in situations where there is a power differential, where there is somebody who is in authority and there is somebody who has less power because of their position. And a, you know, a professor and a student is one of those examples that it is not possible for the person under authority to be able to fully consent to anything that is asked of them just because of the power differential. I just think that that's part of how God has created us. In addition to that, when there is deception and manipulation and twisting of scripture and the things that I've described that happened to me, that further makes it impossible for a person to make a fully consensual choice. And in that kind of situation, I don't think it's appropriate to call it adultery because adultery requires full and free consent on both parties. And so there is just this abuse of power as well as these other forms of abuse that push it from that realm of adultery into abuse. And they really are just, you know, mutually exclusive terms. When there's been a situation like this, we're actually trying to fit something into the wrong framework or the wrong paradigm. Um, and, and I think in scripture, we see what I'm calling, you know, what I'm calling abuse and a lack of consent. I think we see that in scripture in where in the passages where God talks about shepherds and sheep and where he talks about wolves and sheep. And if you if we start with that framework and with that paradigm, I think then that's when we understand that those terms like adultery are not actually accurate for situations like this. So for example, some of the passages that have come to mind for me are Ezekiel chapter 34, where God says he condemns the shepherds for feeding themselves instead of feeding the sheep. And then you have passages like Matthew 7, where it says there are going to be wolves among the sheep that mm. devour the sheep. And I think in a situation, what you have are shepherds who are supposed to represent God and who are supposed to feed and to protect the sheep actually using and mistreating the sheep to feed themselves. And sometimes that involves sexual abuse. Actually, I've been reading um, Wade Mullen's book, Something's Not Right. And if, if mm. you I read it and I thought, oh, so many of these deception, manipulation kind of things that I experienced, he's writing about from pastors in their congregations, but it's not even in sexual situations. So it, I think we got to think about this category of misuse of the sheep by shepherds and think about situations, including, you know, uh, sexual abuse 
of adults by clergy members uh, within that category. And then within that, um, you recognize that scripture puts the responsibility for what happens on the shepherd, not the sheep. Mm, That is so good. And obviously, you spent a lot of time thinking about that and God's using you to, I think, instruct the church. And I, I really appreciate that. That was really well said. So let's talk about what do we see happening? And we see this happening so much in the church. We have these wolves disqualifying themselves, and yet they just relaunch somewhere else. And the amazing thing is that the whole evangelical complex seems to get behind them or is afraid to speak out against them. So recently, I found out that Dr. Arzurdia is listed as an instructor for Vector Academy. This is a nine-month academic and internship-based school for college-age adults, and it's sponsored by Grace City Church in Wenatchee, Washington. Interestingly, not only is Dr. Azurdia listed as an instructor there, but there's also some guest lecturers there who include Mark Driscoll. Anybody who's followed me at all knows that I just published something showing that he is not just repeating what he did at Mars Hill He's actually gotten a lot more bold about it and the abuse and the bullying and now following people 24-7 and hiring uh, investigators, uh, private investigators to do that. I mean, shocking. But here he is showing up and he's showing up with Larry Osborne is also a guest lecturer. Larry is somebody that's helped replatform Mark Driscoll by inviting him to his sticky teams conferences that he does for leaders. I mean, the, the idea that Mark Driscoll is instructing leaders is just disgusting. But here we have... Dr. Zerdia instructing college-age adults. We have him also bringing in Mark Driscoll, Larry Osborne, to, again, this Grace City Church. I reached out to Grace City and to Josh McPherson, who's the senior pastor. So far, I haven't gotten any response from them. But as I understand, Grace City Church has a history with Dr. Zerdia. Can you tell me about that? Uh, you were not the first person to reach out to Grace City Church in Wenatchee and then not get a response back. The things that I do know are that the pastor of Grace City Church, at least in according to my understanding, is a former student of Dr. Azurdia's. We were told by credible witnesses that they created some kind of restoration program for him up there. At least my understanding of it is they weren't interested in hearing what leaders at Trinity Church or other places had to say about it. And now we also had a witness tell us that they have him teaching at a young adults class there. And then, like you said, that he is on faculty with this Vector Academy. Unbelievable. You know, what's unbelievable to me is that restoration programs don't involve going back and reconciling with the people that you hurt and you wounded. That's what's shocking to me. Where in, in the scripture can you go and restore somehow without making the relationships right. I mean, it's the same thing with Driscoll. It's the same thing with James McDonald. He hasn't reconciled that I know with anybody that he's hurt. And yet he's relaunching and saying it's all good. It's it's just stunning to me. And then there's also, this was a Facebook post by Bob Schilling, who I guess you know as a Western Seminary graduate, but he just put on Facebook, just an FYI, heard through the grapevine recently that Art Azurdia is seeking another pastorate in Northern California. All I know is that Pastor Joss McPherson at Grace City Church in Wenatchee, as you said, had this restoration program or something for him. Looks like he's looking for pastoral jobs, and I'm guessing you wouldn't be surprised if he shows up at a church somewhere as a pastor. 
Right. And I think all of what you're describing, Julie, underscores the importance of bringing everything out into the light. Mm, so important. And just to name another place where Dr. Azurdia is being replatformed, he is scheduled to speak, apparently, at the Word Conference that is put on by the Shepherd's Tent Ministries in June. This is a ministry founded by Pastor Fred Campbell and his wife, Joyce. Every year, the group sponsors this three-day Bible conference. Last month, I noticed that they actually had a webpage for him with a bio and a picture and everything. So I, I emailed the Shepherd's Tent and asked, does he have an affiliation with you? Is he speaking at the upcoming conference? No response. After about five days, I sent another email Again, no response. However, last week, the webpage has, has removed Dr. Azurdia's bio, but on the homepage for the conference, there's pictures of seven people. And I'm guessing these are seven speakers that are going to speak at the conference. There's no mention of who they are. It's kind of weird. And if you click on the speakers page, there's no information there. But there is a picture of Dr. Azurdia prominently displayed on the Shepherd's Tent conference promo page. So I'm guessing he's speaking there and there's just not a concern. I mean, there's no returning emails. So it's it's a completely deaf ear to what's going on. But I do know that you've had some recent conversations with the Gospel Coalition asking them, hey, can you go back and right some of the wrong that's been done? And it sounds like maybe there's some traction there. I don't know. What would you say? We talked to them and I disclosed the details of the abuse to them, which is not something I had disclosed to them in the past. And they believed me. They decided to take down the statement about me. And so that statement that you read earlier is now uh, no longer um, on the Gospel Coalition uh, website. At the time, they still had Dr. Azurdia as a kind of a recommended resource, some of his things, and they took that off. So those were helpful things. However, we had a second conversation with them uh, because I would actually like them to do more, and we've asked them for that. And so the things that I wanted, the primary thing is that in addition to this podcast, I am going to put out a public statement that outlines Dr. Azurdia's abuse, as well as the things that happened afterwards on my own website. And I've asked the Gospel Coalition to comment publicly on it, uh, both to spread awareness about the danger that I think Dr. Azurdia poses now to, to other people, as well as to correct the things that they said about me in the past. You know, what I really want, and, and I believe that I am part of this and Richard is part of this, is that I want us all to learn how to handle these situations better, hmm. as well as when they do happen, protect victims from having to go through some kind of public smearing as if it's adultery when actually it is abuse and protect other people from being abused in the same way in the future, in the future. At the end of the book of Judges in chapters 19 to 21, it's a horrible story of a woman who is raped and murdered. But after she is, a man who was witness to it goes and tells all the people what was done to her. We need to do something and speak up. And so mm. then that witness goes to the council of all the leaders and says to them, this is what happened. And that group of leaders says, 
when something like this takes place among God's people, we have to do something and speak up. And so they then go uh, as leaders to the, the tribe of Benjamin and say, you need to hand over this ma- these men who raped and murdered this woman uh, for judgment. And the tribe of Benjamin refuses to do it. They, they refuse to listen. And, and it's interesting in that passage, they go to God, they, the other 11 tribes, they go weeping and mourning to God and say, what should we do? And, and God says, you have to go up against uh, Benjamin. And then it becomes that clear that God himself fights on behalf of the other 11 tribes to have justice for these abusive men. Now, I don't think that God in any way is causing us to do any kind of literal war. So we can't have a one-to-one contextualization there. Hmm. But I do think that it's a place where we see in scripture, and it's not the only place where it says we need to bring things into the light and we need to speak up and do something, not only when shepherds are being abusive to the sheep, but when other people in the name of Christ are protecting them and Mm. giving them safe harbor and returns to ministry. And that's why I really do think that it's, you know, for any victim of abuse who the Lord strengthens to be able to speak up about it, it's a good thing to bring it into the light. And even when the abuse victim can't, for one reason or another, that all of us as Christians, as advocates, have a responsibility to shine a light on what's happening. But if you look at that passage in Judges, it really is the leaders who are supposed to be speaking up and doing something about it. I mean, it's a horrible thing that it's even happening, but I also think that we as Christians need to learn how to respond to these situations like Dr. Azurdia and, as you mentioned, like Mark Driscoll. Hmm. Oh, Katie, that was really well said. And thank you so much for really doing a courageous thing by, by pushing this. It's always sad to me that it seems to always fall on victims to do the hard work, but it always does seem to fall on victims to do the hard work. And I'm just so grateful that you're doing it and grateful that you're speaking out. So thanks so much. And thanks for taking the time to do this podcast. Just really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you to Julie. And I would say that I do hope that what ultimately happens in these situations, at least this is my take on it, is that, for example, when this happened at Western Seminary, that they will make do things like people, all of us will learn to make public announcements and then have external people like Grace come in and do investigations and then let them be the voices speaking up about this instead of the victims having to do that. So that's a change that I'm praying for. Yeah, you and me both. I hope that we learn as a Christian community. We have to learn and we have to do better. And by the way, if you'd like to connect with Katie and read her full statement, you can find her online at katieroberts.org. And if you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. Thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. If you'd like to make sure that you never miss an episode of The Roy's Report, I encourage you, please subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate it if you help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining us today. Hope you have a great day and God bless.